Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the show. Today's guest is Mike Dwyer from Prompt Therapy Solutions. I was first introduced to Mike through a previous guest of the show, Tom Coburn over at Jebit, and loved the story so much I wanted to get Mike on the show. So Prompt was born back in 2017 as Mike actually went through his own personal physical therapy experience and found several pain points throughout the process. He partnered with his good buddy Adam and they decided to tackle the problem together. They've grown well beyond just the two of them today, and we're going to dig into their journey and their learnings. But Mike, excited to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. So I, I'm excited to, to dive in because this is this is not your traditional background. You're not like a, you know, a student of venture capital where you're like obsessed with building this like next Facebook or Amazon or anything like that. But it's just a very sound straightforward business. I, I went through my own physical therapy on my shoulder and it wasn't from a, from a billing and a communication and the note taking and everything. Like you can see the problem. H- how did this all kind of come about? I know you went through it yourself, but like, how did you go from, Hey, I got, you know, I got my own pain to, Hey, let's go, let's go do this as a career and a business. I had no idea what I wanted to do my senior year of college. And I was thinking what excited me, what left an impact on me, and physical therapy was that. Like, it's a pretty crappy point of your life when you get hurt and you're not able to do what you like to do. And for me, I I wanted to be able to track my progress throughout care. So essentially, the first product was for me to do that in Excel, showed my PT that they got excited. And then in time, it evolved to being an operating system for the clinic. But yeah, started for me wanting to understand, you probably could relate to this from being in care. Like, how am I doing? When do I get out? Yeah. Couldn't see it. Yeah. No, I remember getting uh, out out from surgery going, this is never going to be able to be back where it was. And luckily today it is. So kind of wild. Hard hard to see the, the light at the end. So you're going, you're going through your own care and you decide to tackle this problem. How did you know, like you starting to do some research, like how did you even know you had something and how'd you know, like once you really made the decision to jump in with both feet, like how'd you know you really had product market fit? I mean, it's very easy to see that the process is a mess on their end just from being on the care side of it. But like, how'd you know that they were, you know, they're willing to actually make a change in the process and the whole nine yards? Well, the patient app wasn't that. We tried selling that. No one would buy it. And they're like, we have way too much technology. doesn't integrate well. I'm 10% margin business. I don't want to be here. And we learned by tying it up and having a guinea pig client across the street, just the fact that we're changing his margin profile. So essentially, he was 10% margin. We got him to 20% in the first six months of beta testing the product. That's when I knew like we were doing something that actually had an impact. When I knew it was actually starting to get scalable is when we started having half our demos be referral-based demos. Wow. All right. We're going to have to dive into that. Hang hang on one second before you go to the scale side of things. So how did you get your first initial customers though? Is it just like you used your own physical therapist maybe when you were going through it or how did you get the first few? We went, so... 
part of it was driving clinic to clinic, which wasn't a good strategy, but it got a few introductions to people that knew of individuals having a problem. And then the first customer actually came from my girlfriend at the time, who's an SLP, posting in a Facebook group for physical therapists. Like, hey, would you be willing to check these guys out? It was a Figma, but I walked him through what we were thinking, got him really excited to essentially beta test it. Um, yeah. That was it. So door to door, I mean, that's how I cut my teeth selling way back, way back in the day. So is that you, you said it wasn't the most profitable or in the, in the most effective, but why did you start there? I started there just cause we had a few hundred PT offices within 30 miles of the office and PTs are, I mean, they're relationship people. My uncle owns a physical therapy practice, got to know him and the people and yeah, just. Honestly, I also didn't really know where to start. I started this in college and yeah, which like, let me meet people. What do you do? Yeah. yeah. And the calling wasn't working because the gatekeeper yeah. was just not letting us through. So I'm like, well, if I'm in the door, you know, they can't kick me out necessarily. Yeah. So how, how did you figure out how to break, break through then? So you're on Facebook, you got lucky there. Right, you made the cold calls. That's not working. Now you're doing the door knocking thing, saying that that's not super working. How did you start to get some traction? We started to get traction after the ten first customers were essentially selling for us. So what I was telling the guys is like, we have to create raving fans talking about us. And I knew PT was very collaborative. Like it's not like banking, where if you have a deal at Jeffries, you're not going to go to Morgan Stanley at the end of the deal and say, here, take it. Right. But in PT, I knew they liked talking to other PTs just from my experience with my uncle and being in clinics all the time. So yeah, from there it was just, how do we get the word of mouth to start spreading? And EMR is a product where it's like, you don't wake up every day thinking of switching EMR. Like it's death by a thousand paper cuts, we call it, where people are have struggles across every single department. It's rare they're just bleeding from the neck, we like to yeah. say. Um, so yeah, I just, I wanted to have customers advocate for us because the reputation for EMRs is relatively negative. Like people tolerate them, they don't love them. So people loving an EMR is quite, I would say abnormal. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I know that you're a huge customer success and service guy and I mean, it's, you had this from the very, very beginning is you knew that the model was referrals was just awesome service. Make sure they love it. Make those raving fans. How do you do that with such a small team, especially in the early days? Talking to the customers nonstop and we had no money. Like we were all working for free for the first three years of this. So for us, every minute, initially we wanted to be talking to customers and working through problems. They also like seeing that, like they actually had an impact in what we were doing and that we cared. Um, so yeah, it's just keeping our ear to what they're dealing with and then solving it. Like one of our biggest assets is how fast we developed this thing. Like I was on one customer call one day, gave an idea in three days, we launched their feature for them. Like that's something that they weren't used to prior to coming to prompt. Well, yeah. Yeah. 
that's that's fast. I mean, that's really, really fast. So, I mean, I would imagine if, if those, you know, if the door knocking and the driving around wasn't the most effective, I would imagine that you learned a ton in order to get the next customers. Like that's about as fast of a feedback as you can possibly get. Yeah. Like what, what from that ultimately transpired into what you learned in order to figure out what was the thing that ultimately did work as far as generating the, the customers? I think speaking to them, like PTs, they, they're clinicians first, typically business owners second, and we help bridge the gap to get them to be better business owners with all of our tools. So speaking more, I guess their language, also like what not to say, being in the door and being turned away so many times, like every time we got in the car after going to a clinic, we evaluated what did we say, how could we have tweaked that? Um. Yeah, does that kind of answer what? Yeah, that makes sense. And so, I mean, I look at it, the reason that I'm asking is I, I get asked a lot of questions around this, and I know there's a lot of talk around like how you kind of get started type of thing. Like when you look back, like do you, would, would you have done it differently as far as like those initial learnings? I mean, so much of, in my experience has been like, do the door knocking, put yourself in a situation to hear the feedback, right? You're going to get the gatekeepers, obviously, that say just go away. But the, the actual live conversations, while you might not sell something, you're going to learn a ton. I'm curious if that if that type of experience was really, really powerful for you in order to set you up for the next step. Yeah, learn. I mean, even if we got told no, we asked, hey, can we sit with you for an hour and just talk to you about your pain points? So it was big for information gathering. It was also big for just like, I would say I'm pretty introverted despite being in sales and putting myself out there and going through that and building that muscle was something me or Adam didn't have That's coming into it. So I guess it just, it got us used to one, asking questions, asking the right questions and two, being willing to even walk in the door, which is half the battle from yep. my perspective. Yeah. So you use that, obviously your, your girlfriend was able to, to, to get you a, a lead through through Facebook. How'd you kind of figure out what was the next thing? Like, how'd you get to the point where you are generating the inbound and you're generating referrals? Like, what was that, that middle gap? Yeah, so I learned our competitors were all doing the same thing, calling, going to the clinics. So tried to do some things that our competitors weren't doing. So you used to buy bricks and then say, you know, next time, we still do this actually. Next time you get aggravated your EMR, throw this at it. Started sending like letter campaigns that was hyper personalized to them, all handwritten. Yeah, just essentially doing things other than calling, emailing, LinkedIn, like things that would leave an impact on them. Like they'll remember that. Like that. You get a brick sent to your office. Yeah. No, hey. I think that especially nowadays, and it's I feel like it only it gets stressed more and more, is creativity in selling and in prospecting, it wins out. Like every time it wins out. Because if you're just sending emails and making cold calls, like everybody's doing the exact same thing, especially if you're doing like mass blasts, things like that. That makes a lot of sense. So how'd you know, like, all right, so you fast forward, obviously you started to generate a bunch of inbound, like obviously you guys are doing doing well now, but 
there's this inflection point when you're learning and you're fighting for your first 10 customers. And even when you get 10 customers, like you don't really know what you got, right? You're still figuring out the product. You're still figuring out what to say. How'd you know you really actually had product market fit? I mean, after 10, I think like, so our sales cycle originally was like 10 demos per close and then it started to shorten to two to three and we started getting a lot less pushback. I mean, the product wasn't fully baked at 10 customers, but the fact that the message was resonating so quick and they were acting on it was probably the point for me where I'm like, shit, like we have something. And then as going from like 10 to 100 customers and having 80% of them be inbound directed at us was like, all right, this is this is working. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you sold your customers. Because I know that as, a, as an introvert, you don't necessarily ex expand the same kind of like aggressive or hot shot or bully tactics that a lot of other types of you know kind of extroverted sales reps might use and there's different types of reps who are introverted who use different types of plays that work for them what was the thing that like you guys were able to do that helped you truly actually sell the product i mean selling to people we're all people and like the Dale Carnegie book was one of the first ones I've ever read of like, people remember how you make them feel. So just asking them questions of why you got into PT, what keeps you up at night? It doesn't need to be about technology and just focusing on them whenever I got a shot to get a hold of someone. And maybe it's not, you don't need AMR right now. Maybe you need help somewhere else. And a lot of my time when we, cause it took us two years to get a product that I could actually sell. So a lot of my time was really just spent networking and figuring out how I could add value in the interim. Mm -hmm. So I built a lot of relationships with recruiters, with marketers, with whatever a PT club needs, supplies. And I try to help them out, even if it wasn't tech. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So is that something that you still do today? Or is that something that you teach the team? Like, how does that kind of translate because I mean you don't have a product to sell you got a little bit more time right the the goals are probably not as clearly defined or maybe as easy to attain just because there's no product but like how does that transfer from that knowledge into today yeah all of our reps I I kind of so we were very meticulous typing up what didn't work and what worked and I guess before Gone came out even, like we were recording our meetings and using that to essentially build a catalog for anyone new coming on. Yeah, it's. I also look for that in the hiring process. Like I look for how people ask questions to me. I, I look at how I feel in the meeting talking to them. So I, I guess on multiple fronts. And then Emma has been incredible. Emma Brady's our director of sales. She came to us after being almost a client. She was starting her own practice, realized what we were doing, and was like, holy shit, like, I got to work for you guys. This is exactly what I needed. So understood the pain point of what we were solving, but also really understood how owners think because she was one. Yeah. So she also helps kind of bring that owner perspective. And then I bring in our story, what we're trying to do, 
And I also like the reps telling why they got involved in prompt. Like you could, there's a million companies hiring, like you could work anywhere, but why'd you pick prompt and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah. It resonates with people. It's one of my all time favorite questions to ask. Right. And I've, and I don't phrase it that much differently than you, but you, know, when you're, when you're interviewing and applying for jobs and you can pick any company and why'd you pick this tiny little dinky company over here? Right? Like, why do you want to work here? And if they have a solid answer, that just gives you such a huge leg up. It, it really does make a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's huge. And yeah, we just monitor it, like how the calls go. One of my big things is talking less than 40% on a call. Um, just How'd you get to 40%? So we, we learn we lose deals when we talk over 40% on, on the demos. Um, How how'd you figure that out? That's an interesting insight. Gong helped with that uh, okay. recently. We've had Gong for a year and a half, but beforehand we would just like give a rough abbreviation of time. Um, yeah, because well, that's what they call. say, right? Like talk, talk, talk less than the other one. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. So how do you? And I want to get into the Emma thing because that's an interesting story in and of itself, but. How do you all of a sudden you're documenting everything? Obviously, you're doing a lot of kind of leading the, the sales efforts. You're involved with all the different demos. Things are going from 10 demos down to two or three demos in the sales cycle. How all of a sudden did you go, you know what? It's time to actually start hiring salespeople. I was doing all of them uh, for the first 18 months. And my calendar, I just, I, I wasn't able to do it. Like I, I was doing 50 hours of demos a week. And by the end of the day, it's like, you have to be on as if the 12th call of the day is the same as the first. And yeah, I was just getting burned, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it wasn't obviously scalable. With that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. No, that, I, I think that's a great way to think about what that trigger event is. So when you... When you start to hire your first person, what is, how do you even go about doing that? I mean, that's, that's something that I experience quite a bit or I'm often asked about is, Hey, we're the founders, you know, you got your product, you got your engineers, you, you know, you got all that going and all of a sudden you're selling to the point where it's time to actually bring on other parts of the team. Is it, I bring on an SDR? Is it an AE? Is it a, Hey, I brought on my buddy who I think he knows how to sell. Cause he used to sell, you know, Salesforce or something like how, how'd you get started? So I was looking for someone that could be full cycle, but also help my existing book of business. So the first demo is pretty easy to cake. Like it took Emma was actually the first hire. Um, and the first demo, it takes like, it took her a week to learn it. And then I would hop in on her later demos to get more specialized. And then she helped me a lot with the follow-up side of things. Just I'm doing 10 to 12 demos a day and then doing all the follow-up around it to schedule more meetings, convert the deal. The end of the sales cycle was becoming more challenging because I was putting more emphasis on the beginning stage, just trying to crank demos. But was losing on the follow-up. So I wanted her to come in to ace the first demo and, and help the follow-up essentially. That's interesting. So she went from being a business owner of a PT shop to becoming your first sales rep and now runs a sales team. Yeah. It's cool. Not a lot of people would have made that bet on the fact that 
She doesn't have a lot of sales experience, right? She doesn't have a previous sales career. She's a she's a PT. So what 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 was it that you were like? This is the hire. The fact that she was willing to quit her business and join, and in my sales process with her, the question she was asking, the way she thought about her own business, I th I thought was unique. I didn't have like a criteria like we do now. Like now it's more buttoned up. It for me initially it was just feel. And I like to think I know I know the customer really well and I knew she would too and go to bat for them. Like not just try to get a quick sale, but really help them. And yeah, there there wasn't a box in my head she didn't click. Like there was no reservations. That's awesome. Ever. No, I think a lot of the early ones are certainly feel, but it's, it's interesting. I, I think about things in terms of a hiring scorecard is a lot of what I teach. And it's interesting because do you, do you have something like that today? It sounds like you have a little bit more formal process today. We do at, yeah. at 20 people we brought on ahead of people and she helped button up our yeah, little, little SOP right there. There was zero there is zero so it's it's interesting because you had some it sounds like you had some things that you were already like hey these are my non-negotiables right you gotta understand the customer treat them with the same kind of rigor and respect and and really help you know the the cs or the support side of things was a big piece follow-up drive right like she was just naturally curious so it's those I, I look at it and I try to break my scorecard up into like things that you can teach and things that you can't teach and you kind of need to recruit for. Like you can't teach some of these. She either cares or she doesn't care, right? She either wants to learn about it and that's how you go above and beyond. So that's that's interesting. So I know that so she so she was your first sales rep. What what was it that happened that said, okay, it's time to hire our second or third and our fourth? I mean, I know you're at uh, what is it, three or four AEs now, a couple BDRs as well. I mean, that's, you're starting to, you know, quadruple the size of the team at this point. Yeah, we're at five AEs and then eight BDRs. The next hire after Emma was another AE, actually. The inbound was going really well, so we didn't have a large outbound motion after, I would say, 25 customers. A lot of it was coming to us at that point. So I wanted someone that was really good at closing and getting it to the finish line. So hired an experienced person outside of the industry for that hire. Also wanted a stress test, like, are we going to be hiring clinicians for this team? Can we get people outside of the industry, which gives you obviously a bigger pool of talent? Yeah. What'd you figure out? Because that's, a, I think, I feel like that's a popular question based on really any company, right? Is do I got to hire the have to have the industry experience or do I have to have a 10 year experience salesperson? Like, how'd you figure that out, out outside of some guessing? <laughs> yeah. So my partner, Adam, is just really metrics based and we looked at connection rates on calls. We looked at demos to close. We looked at close percentage and just tried to optimize it, honestly. I learned that the therapists tend to close worse than someone who's had experience selling outside. They're really good on the initial calls, but asking to actually, hey, like, we're a fit. Like, this is going to work for you. Let's do it. Was a harder motion for them, generally. Yeah. 
I learned the ramp time, though, on therapists is a lot quicker because they've lived the pain. They understand it. Um, That's an interesting balance as far as, I mean, you look at like uh, ramp time, you look at closing rate, just overall activity. So my guess is you've learned this through several hires. Yeah. And not all of them, right? Yeah. Not all of them are right. They never are. That's part of the process. But like, all right, so you get Emma right. And then you hire this next guy who is kind of the opposite, right? Seasoned sales veteran type type thing. How do you think about, I mean, that's a totally different type of hire. So the way that you kind of treat Emma and the way that you treat this person, vastly different. And then like, how do you know if that person worked out or not? I knew they were working out when they were closing over 35% consistently for more than a quarter. And how'd you get to that 35% just between you and Emma saying, hey, here's our benchmark? Yeah, roughly we were closing around 35 to 40% of anyone coming in and they were about in line with that. Okay, that makes sense. And then what? one of the things that's really challenging is, is onboarding at a startup. And so, I mean, especially as a co-founder, you're getting pulled into a million other things. You obviously have Emma, so you already have one person. She's up and running and performing, but not, you know, to the level that you are. Now you start to bring in some additional people. How do you how do you think about kind of this onboarding initial like ramp up period? That's something I didn't really have any process for, to be honest. And I I, I wish I did sooner. It was really just like shadow with me, sit with me for a few days and try to figure this out. Yeah. And after the third hire that, yeah, it just wasn't going to work. So I really always like after the three, I wanted to hire not one at a time. I wanted to get a team of people. And then Emma wrote down all of her learnings. Like, I'm like, how could we have done this better? And she provided that. And part of it's just structure of what do I do and how do you define success even? I didn't really even articulate that. So yeah, it's got better with time. It's it's an evolving process even still. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So is it, I mean, it's it's rare to hear founders talk about documentation the way that you've, you've been talking about. So it sounds like that's a kind of a core piece to just write it all down, review it. Do you guys have like a a wiki or something that everybody just kind of say, hey, point everybody in the same direction. We're all using the We're same religious thing. with Notion. Notion. Everything's a Notion. And then we have Gong libraries for all of our calls, like tagging it. This went well. This went poorly. Wow. Um, How often do you listen to calls? I listen probably, I would say, an hour a week to calls now. That's more on Emma's okay. head. And then now we have a BDR team lead as well. He does that for any outbound calls. Yep. But I, I'm also still selling too, which honestly I should probably, I, I need to listen more of your content <laughs> uh, given, given your niche. But, so uh, thank you. I appreciate it. There's listen to the one with Tom. He, one of my favorite episodes. So I'm, I'm curious from like, this is a huge decision to say you're the co-founder You've been selling this thing the longest. All of a sudden, Emma's having some success. She's producing. Most co-founders are like, sweet. 
this is great. I'm going to be the manager. I'm going to go work on the product or maybe sleep or take a vacation or something, right? And change, kind of change roles. And it's really that that niche around transitioning out of founder-led sales, right? You've, you've been working with Emma day in and day out. She's starting to get it. She's starting to have that success. The others are starting to come on as well. But you made an interesting choice. You actually had Emma do the sales leadership role instead of yourself. Can can you walk us through a little bit about why and what was your reasoning and how you think about it? I think it's really interesting. I was just shying away from the management part so much. I, I just love being in conversations with customers, partners, and there was a lot I was neglecting that can make the team better. And I wouldn't say I'm the most detailed person ever, like with checklists. Like I, I think that I think that comes from Adam a lot of just being so data driven. I'm data driven too, but not at the degree he is. So I, I think it was just like knowing that, hey, I'm not gonna be the best person for this. Like I can add way more value, at least selling for now, and have Emma kind of button it up so everyone could sell better with my guidance on it but not managing each rep individually on top of all the other things I have going on too. That's interesting. One of the things, and here's more of a specific question to you is in that situation, one of the things that could happen is there's the co-founder and then there's the manager and everyone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this person's my manager, but this guy, this guy's the co-founder and unintentionally, Oftentimes the co-founder will say something and the team will respond to that and kind of ditch what the manager's saying. Essentially like the founders, the co-founders undermining the, the, the leader's kind of role and, and what they're saying. Was that ever any kind of issue? I mean, what you're, what you're saying is amazing that you did that. You're really saying, hey, I'm not the right person for this job. She is, and I'm going to empower her to go do it. But I do see unintentionally the founder kind of go, Oh, we need to do what we got to do. Did that ever become a thing or did you attack it head on? Like, well, I'm interested so, to hear uh, kind of your thoughts. Well, yeah, we learned early on. So like me, Adam, and the two other people that were initially involved starting this, we were all trying to do what each other was doing in a way and stepping on each other's toes. And yeah, it just wasn't super productive at times. So one of the, we call it stay in your lane, but if you need help, like pull me and not be siloed. So I, I wanted to give her, it's her team. Like, yes, I'm the co-founder, but she's the person speaking to these individuals on the team way more frequently than I. And then also just being succinct in our messaging. Like I, I wouldn't do a broad brushstroke of the entire team and trump her before talking to her. Um, yeah, I wanted to empower her to do well in that role. And part of that is to, with my guidance, manage that team. That makes sense. And so did she report to you or does report yes. to you? Yeah. And so how does that look? I mean, it's, it's different, right? Instead of managing a team, you essentially are managing a, a manager of, of the team. That can be in and of itself a pretty big challenge, right? You, uh, come out of college. You don't have, you know, 30 years of corporate management experience. 
you haven't led sales teams and high growth and all this kind of stuff like how did you kind of get yourself in the in the role or the even the mindset to be able to help somebody who's a sales leader for you yeah so i mean imparting what has made me successful selling to help other people emulate that and then asking for help if i don't know something i'll ping 15 10 people not to make the answer for me but help shape the thinking around it of how we should do something yeah i mean i just i had no experience coming into this i started at senior year of college yeah. and learned selling as i go so yeah. i try not to specifically with bigger decisions get feedback and then really think through it before making a final call that's awesome um, and, and then yeah i mean once you do this enough you learn the through wounds what works what doesn't work so now it's getting a little bit easier to make decisions yeah. but early on it's just asking for help i'm curious when you, you look back at at this stage that we're at kind of in the story when you look back what are like the one is the number one or number two things that if you know whether it's key learning moments or hey if i had a chance to do it again I, i'd maybe do it a little bit differently is there any anything that really sticks out in your mind right at that this kind of inflection point I talked a lot of, I used to like, how are you different than X and me comparing myself to X. And this is more of like when I'm on like selling and yeah. like, I, I think focusing more of what we're good at and how we're different and where we're moving the ship versus focusing on what other people do. And I wish I was better at here, like dealing with losing deals and it's going to happen but I feel like it weighs on me for a while and then I don't, I'm not in my A game for like, I've gotten better at this in time, but yeah. it's okay. Like we have a great product. We have a great team. If someone doesn't see that, then we have, you know, they'll come back. We have a saying all roads lead to prompt and I didn't always, I guess, still work on it, but starting yep. to believe it more. Yep. It's, hard. it's a little bit difficult in the beginning days, right? But you gotta, yeah. you gotta believe it. That makes sense. Yeah, it's. I think that's a really good lesson. It's. I think it's a powerful lesson for any and all founders to really listen to. Is, I mean, you're gonna get, you know, pushback and you overcome adversity, and people are gonna say no to you. And it could be that they don't say no to you because they don't like your product. They could say no because they're not a, you know, a tech forward kind of early entrepreneur or early adopter type person. I mean. You know, you, t you talk to someone, they think it's the greatest thing in the world, but they're like, I'm going to need you to have at least like a hundred customers before I would ever sign up. And I think that's just like understanding all of the types of personas, types of people, the buying cycles, the buying journeys, those types of things are really powerful. Yeah, I think I guess one more is just in your gut, you tend to know if someone's not going to work out. And I've had a few people here for a long time that I knew in the first 60 days that it wasn't going to work. So being sooner to figure, like get to that decision and yeah, yeah it could definitely hurt the company having someone who shouldn't be in a seat in a seat as you're scaling fast. Yep. I, I heard, I heard from a friend many years ago, he said, you'll never regret firing someone who you've been wanting to fire for a long time. 
if you fire them and you're, I've never heard anyone say like, oh, I fired this person and I really regret like, you know what, they, they would have produced so much if I never, like that's rarely ever the scenario, if ever. So is there something that you specifically look for or do in that situation now that you've learned that in order to make it so that that, you know, that scenario doesn't happen anymore in order to kind of fire fast type of thing? Yeah, so... I mean, one, it's objective. Like if someone's not able to perform, becomes pretty clear in 60 days if you're not at least ramped. And then I look to Amanda, who's a head of people, because she's got a cadence usually once a week for those first 30 days and can understand if it's a them problem or it's an us problem. Obviously, we try to tease this out during the hiring process, but it's hard to hit a hundred percent on that. So yeah, mixture of objective. And then is it an us problem or is it a them putting in the effort problem? Yeah. And if it's an us problem, then Make the yeah, we try to tackle it, you know, immediately. It's good. I mean, you said that you hired your director of people, 35 people in 20 people in 20 people in. Okay. So that is not a very common hire to make. Tom Coburn, because I, t I'm like Tom. Do we? We're 23 people. I talk to these people every single day. Yeah. Like, do you really need? And he was so big on. It, he's just like, I should have done it at 10. And I was like, Yeah, kind of. But I, I have heard that that is quite early. Yeah. Director. Yeah, it is quite early, but it sounds like one of the best hires you've made. Possibly the best, yeah, the best, um, especially being remote. Like we've been a remote company from day one yeah. and she just got a feel for where everyone's at, like helps them get on a growth path, totally changed our hiring process. Cause we knew the way we were like, it became pretty predictable what we knew we were going to sign every month. Like we haven't missed a number in four years that we projected. And so what? we knew, wait, say that one more time. We, we haven't missed one number in four years since we started making projections. Wow. Um, and we knew with that, that we would be hiring quite fast. And we knew that us who is producing and also managing couldn't do the front end hiring. Like it's not, a, it is a full-time job. Totally. So yeah, Tom's like, get this person tomorrow. So we started looking for it and Amanda was, yeah, instant oh, click. That's awesome. Helps to have good advisors who have been in, who've, who've been there, done that. Tom, Tom's yeah. Tom's got a few years of that. So yeah. let me let me flip that around. When you think about from this specific stage, and this is the hey Emma's in in spot. You have a couple of salespeople. She's now the director. What do you look back and say? You know what? This is the thing that we're you know we we made some strong strong bets and I, we've we've already gone through a few hires but is there is there something from a, a strategy perspective or some kind of a play that you were like this was it like this was a bet that we made and it and, and it was a gamble but it took off and it worked. I guess it doesn't have to relate to people just anything. Yeah. Um, I think betting all in on customer success and we've pegged that at 30% of our revenue and are going to continue to maintain that. 
kind of the whole raving fan saying PLG motion, like getting time to value dialed in and getting people selling for us when we're not there has been core thesis from day one. And I think a lot of firms cut on CS and it's expensive, but it's, it's, it's so worth it. Yeah. Um, well, you could look at it the other way and say, how expensive is it if your customers leave? Then yeah. it gets even more expensive. And I don't know that you're in a situation to ever really want to find out, but you know, it, it makes it so at least you understand your costs and you can move forward. But I think that if you're working with your core philosophy around customers first and help the customer, it seems to be the right bet. Yeah, it's, it's thankfully worked out. Churn is really low, which is awesome. So everything net new is net new pretty much. That's huge. So let's let's move forward. So Emma's now sales director. What does that look like? You're starting to bring in your BDRs. I mean, you got a BDR manager now. So there was a time where you brought in, your, like thinking about splitting up the actual sales process with multiple people. That's a little scary trying to understand who does what that handoff that's really powerful how'd you start to kind of figure this out like what role did you play and then what role did she play because i know obviously you're supporting her all the time yeah so splitting it off we just learned that the bdr skill set and the training is different than the ae so we wanted someone to really dial in on the messaging at the front end and then have you know emma come in to help close business faster on the demo process I guess how I got involved with that is one, getting Emma in that role for the AEs and then identifying a BDR who started with us, who similar to Emma had management skills and wanted to learn new skills. So, yeah, I mean, we just, I've been trying to promote within and create opportunity. So being here, you know, you're able to move up. That makes sense. So talk, let's talk a little bit about your, your sales motions then, because I think that'll put a little bit more context to this. So for a while, there was more inbound. So it was word of mouth. It's hard to kind of ratchet that up, like intentionally outside of, you know, pushing people to be like, hey, you know anybody else? But all of a sudden, inbounds getting to a point where it's obviously too busy for you, too busy for Emma, too busy for the next person, the next person, the next person. Is inbound your play now or do you do outbound in addition to inbound? We're about 20% outbound, 80% inbound. Um, okay. And what do you do to drive the bulk of your inbound? So 40% is paid, 40% is referral. Referral. Is there so, something you specifically do to generate referral? Or is it just naturally happen or do you intentionally do something? We intentionally do that. It's more of a CS motion. Um, we check in with them monthly. And typically by the end of month two, people are really stoked on prompt. And so we ask, hey, do you know anyone else that could use this? Powerful. Um, so, so part of the training and the part of implementation of CS is the actual ask from CS to the customer. Correct. Yeah. I mean, CS really gets to know their team. They're assigned to that person's account and get to know their business, get to know them. So it becomes an easier ask and we can tell pretty quickly if someone's going to be a promoter or not. Yeah. We have the Pendo data, we have the rolling NPS averages. So we know where they're at before we ask that question and we know who they are because they've been working with them for three months. Yep. Uh, 
That makes yeah, a lot of we, sense. We ask for the order, and most people say, yeah, like, I, I know so-and-so, you should talk to them. Right. Beautiful. And what does that look like? Is the CS person make the introduction, get introduced and then make an introduction to a BDR or like, how does the, how do you kind of close that loop back into sales? Yeah, we close it back to the BDR. Um, okay. So we just ask for the email and ask if we can use their name. And from there we just, yeah, try to start a conversation. Beautiful. All right. So CS gets the name and the email contact information gives it to the BDR. BDR obviously loads it into the CRM correctly, lead source, all that kind of jazz, and then does their outreach and says, so-and-so dropped your name. Would yeah. love to talk. We also do, it's I think been helpful. We do a quarterly um, customer survey and we, we get huge adoption on it. Like over half the user base actually answers it. Wow. They put, one of our questions is, would you be willing to be a reference for us? And if that's checked, CS will also reach out, talk to them about what's going well and bridge that conversation as well. That's huge. That's awesome. When you got over 50%, it's a good sign. 40% now. 40%, okay. 50% is when we knew we had a... Yeah, no, that's, that's a heck of a model. So, all right, so that makes a lot of sense. We'll skip over paid just because it's it's as straightforward as that. We can we can have a whole nother conversation around how you optimize paid, which is not my forte because frankly it bore is boring to me, <laughs> and I usually have other not people do either. it. Trust me, I my brain doesn't work like that. So let's talk a little bit about the outbound side of things. And so all of a sudden you've had inbound for years at this point, and now we're going to start generating some outbound. And you historically did outbound to yourself saying that this is not going to work and this didn't work and I didn't like it and it wasn't effective and whatever other words that we want to use. All of a sudden we know that outbound is the future or at least part of the future. Yeah. Walk me through a little bit about kind of how you got started. I think it's more about intentional outbound versus spray and pray. Um, so if someone's a big thing is Facebook, Reddit, like people are pretty vocal about EMRs in general. It takes up so much of their day. Most people don't like it. They post online, hey, I don't like it, any alternatives. So we try to start warmer in the onion and then get colder on the way out. Yeah, and then there's a ton of cues, like if someone's filled in a, a something on our site, if whatever, someone's interacting with our ads, like... We go through that first. And then next, as we get colder, we go into geographies we're hot in and know the market well. And yeah, like pointing to, hey, do you know so-and-so down the road that uses us? Yeah. Like that stuff lands well. Powerful. So it's very strategic outbound. This isn't just back in the day, it was open the phone book, but now it's open up Zoom info and start, you know, you know, making a, an email blast. Everything that you're doing has a reason to, I'm going to reach out to you for this reason and say this type of message really before you ever do the outbound itself. It's almost like you're, you built the strategy and then you go build the list. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, like even ch chat on our site, answering that in two minutes. Like we try to just keep it, people that already interest us know they have a problem and then 
go out from there. Yep. So how do you get started as far as building out the team? Is it is it people currently on the team start changing their job and start doing outbound or you just go ahead and hire some some BDRs intentionally specifically to do that? Like how'd you kind of get started there? Yeah, so the BDR role, we started uh, like two and a half years ago. And initially it was just pick up the phone after like two days of training and call. And now it's not that way. It's a little bit more methodical of role playing. We hire in groups of two to three. So everyone's learning from each other on that. And then we have a checklist of what we're looking for over the course of three to four weeks um, before you pick up the phone. Just because, I mean, you have one chance to make an impression. And if it's not a good one, like you could lose the business entirely forever. So yeah, just really dialing in the messaging and training and just constant practice. Even well, after there. Did, did I hear you correctly? Your reps don't get on until three, four weeks in before three, they actually can weeks, start, yeah. start making calls. Okay. Yeah. And when do you consider someone fully ramped? Fully ramped, meaning like they're successful in the role. Yeah, they're successful. They're able to have like a, a full-fledged quota. There's nothing like they're outside of the big initial training. Obviously, you have training ongoing, but the initial onboarding and ramping them up, when do they go yeah. like release them into the wild type of thing? So they pass our, um, we have an owner that will come in and like have a conversation as if they're, they're a friend of mine and they'll come in and kind of stress test on the BDR side to make sure the messaging is really good. And then we do a group call where we kind of just rapid fire on the person in a way. Um, <laughs> and then how we define success after the three to four weeks is if you're booking six calls a week for initial demo. And if they're showing up, that's more important. So six like actual people that show up for that meeting. You have it all dial in. A lot of trial and error, I, I bet, is uh, baked into that as well. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. So have you, so when you get, first get started, I mean, are you using like a dialer or you're sending out email blasts? Like, how'd you, like, where did you start and kind of where you're at today as far as the right mix of outbound to, to actually get hit the numbers that you obviously want to hit? Yeah. So HubSpot was free at the time and, we had no money, so that was the best. That was an easy one. <laughs> and yeah, just the ability to sequence, dial out of HubSpot, have the calls recorded in HubSpot. And then, I mean, it's gone through evolutions. We AB test things quite a bit now on the cadence of when we should be calling, when to send the email, what content matters, and when. So it's more surgical now than it was initially, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's good. So do you, what what are the channels that you use? Is it mainly phone and email or do you use social or other types of channels as well? Phone, email, LinkedIn. Conferences have been huge for us. Our highest ROI marketing spend is by far in conferences. Wow, okay. So It's usually hit or miss for people, but that's good to see that you guys have figured that piece out. Yeah, we've been trying to go to every show in PT. That makes um, sense. That's awesome. So when you start to look at this and it's starting to work, right? You, I mean, now that you have a BDR manager, it's, it's obviously working. 
what what do you what do you take or, or think of as the reason for the success of the BDR team? Like, is it just consistent progress or you know consistent execution, dialing in the messaging? Because to your point, I mean that that messaging that you had dialed in for so many years before you really hit the ground and started hiring people, this is different, right? I mean, you guys have more traction, you have a little bit of a name, but still, outbound's really really hard. Yeah. I... LinkedIn is so successful because you get directly to the person. I mean, calling a clinic and getting hit with the front desk and pass away, every industry deals with that. So just trying to get closer to who is actually able to make a decision, which is usually the office manager or the owner. Yeah, sending cards to them, being on LinkedIn, paying them. Could you restate that just so I'm on the right track? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I want to get a better understanding between the time that you started your outbound to the time that you are at today, like what did you kind of figure out was the things that like made it work? Because you knew that outbound needed to be a part of the strategy, but you've now gotten to the point where you've dialed it in and obviously you use phone, you use email, you use LinkedIn, but like without kind of giving away your secret sauce, like what, what, what do you kind of say like this is the reason why it's actually working at this point? Because Early on, when you were trying to do it, it wasn't really working. Obviously, you have a tremendous amount of more customers and success stories and talk tracks now. Yeah, it's not just selling features, it's selling impact. It's like when we get a hold of someone, we convert it a really high clip. Like our pitch is you make an extra 32 grand a provider on prompt versus if you're not on prompt with the same labor that you have today by optimizing things. And and that resonates because I'm not selling a scheduling documentation billing tool. I'm selling our impact and getting away from the features. And I think the BDR team does that really well. They're not talking about faxing. They're, yeah. they're, they're talking about what we could do for their business. Yeah. Nobody, nobody's sitting at home being like, you know what would save my business? A scheduling tool. That's, that's yeah. it. That's the thing I need. Yeah. yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. When, when you look back at kind of where you've you've been in the earlier days of your sales team to kind of where you are today, na name one or two of the kind of the best bets that you've made to really scale revenue. So we bought this Aspireship course. Have you ever heard of Aspireship? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know course. It's been a great training tool for the team. We have everyone go through it. it. wasn't inexpensive, but I think it was really worth it. And then I'm trying to think of a big bet. I mean, the paid stuff we do. I I, yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe I mean maybe it's not that. I mean, it's interesting to hear because I'm not asking you to go kind of fishing through your through the story, but it sounds like it's just I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but it's just a combination of a bunch of really strong people who just execute a lot of the like little small things each and every single day that has has worked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's just uber efficient, and they're able to get to people and convert them at a silly high clip which, which helps yeah i guess it's really just investing in their success with yeah i guess the here's a different way to think about it. how did you know to pour gas 
right? To, to really invest. How'd you know to dial up paid? How'd you know to hire more people? Like, is it like, how do you know to do well, that versus pull back? Like our CAC payback was, I guess when you factor in onboarding in the sales cycle, it was like four months. And oh. yeah, for us, it's like, all right, if we get paid back in four months, we have a sticky product. It like, and even as we've scaled the spend, it stayed pretty close to that, which is I feel like abnormal. Yeah. It's interesting. So much of what you do and you kind of weave it in there nonchalantly, just kind of talk about you're so much of what you guys are doing is numbers based. Like you're always looking at the numbers and maybe that's Adam's side of the house to keep you, keep you honest or something. But you know, to be just process driven and be really numbers focused to say, Hey, month over month, quarter over quarter, week over week, whatever, you know, whatever the timeline is, but you looking at metrics to be able to say, this is working. This is, Early on, sure, it was a gut feel, but now it's, it works, right? Your, 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 your BDRs are like six meetings and they show up like not 12, not two, six. And that's a reason, right? Sub 40% talk time for calls. Like that's really powerful. Like having those types of metrics really not only set you guys up for success, but really set everybody else up for success because they now know what it is that they're trying to look for. It's not go sell as much as you can make as many calls as you can make as many, you know, make as many deals as you can. But it's like very, very numbers driven without this, like, I'm not feeling this like aggressive, come on guys. Like we got to hit our numbers every single, like drill you type of thing. It's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I hate that whenever I'm being sold something like you have Friday to sign up or, and you're not getting this deal. Like, that's just not how I wanted to structure the sales work. Like, I, I want competition, don't get me wrong, but I want healthy competition. I want people that want to work here and, and, and sell here for a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wasn't, wasn't going after that strategy. That makes a lot of sense. When you look back on, on things and you could do one or two things differently throughout the course of the company to date, is there anything that you can point to? I think I, like early on, I tried to do everything and I wasn't, I was good at a lot of things, but not great at something. So I think I've gotten much better at delegating things away from my plate to focus on what helps double this company faster, which could mean a multitude of different things. Yep. So yeah, that I wish I sense. learned that. Um, I mean, there's little things, but I would say, say that would be the number one. Yeah. No, that's good. Mike, this has been awesome. I feel like I could talk about this for hours longer. I love the story. Hopefully you get this lead that I just sent you, which is my PT, who I just told to check you guys out. Want to wrap up here. And, and I always ask a couple of questions wrapping up. What is a, a favorite book or a favorite resource or a mentor or somebody that you, you recommend to the overall audience as far as how to either sell more or build the company, kind of anything along the, the go to market side of things? Yeah, the I mean, one book I have everyone read, it's not a new one. It's probably one of the most famous ones, but How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, 
I reread that every year. And that's a good one. Yeah. And then I actually just sat through, I was in Orlando and I was at a speech with Marcus Limones. Yeah. And it was a conference about selling and him talking about vulnerability, connecting with people, just the whole, anything on Marcus Limones. After that, I'm sold on. Um, I want him to come speak to our team. All right. Check. Really good. Yeah, I saw him. I forgot what his show is, but I... He's the guy from The Profit. Profit. That's what it is. Awesome. How how does the audience get more of you? LinkedIn, Twitter? What What's the best way to get more of you? Yeah, LinkedIn, just Mike Dwyer. And okay. then our site, promptdmr.com. All right. Yeah. I'll link you guys in the show notes. Last thing. Any last remaining wisdom that you have to the audience, whether it's how to build a company, how to build a sales team, sales in general, anything, any remaining wisdom that you could part, part ways with us? There's one thing I learned since starting this, asking for help's okay. You can't do it all yourself. And I feel like when we were five people, 10 people, like we were trying to do everything and not always making the right decisions. And you can mitigate that by having the right people in your corner. So I would just say network and, and meet people that are doing this. The best feedback I ever get from is from founders that are are living your day to day. So. Ask them for help. Good advice. Excellent advice. Mike, I appreciate the time. We are going to have to have you on when you when you guys go IPO or get acquired or whatever the, the final journey is for you. I can't, can't wait to see it. Wishing you guys the best of luck along the journey. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.